1: Arsenal may be struggling to hit the goal at the moment, but not our fundraiser. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Alex Smith, the like black Man's Twitter, Yankee Gunner. You know, it is, it is absolutely the case that when things are a bit shit on the pitch, we tend to, well, let's just say it, shit on each other, right? Social media gets a bit spiky. Podcasts can get a bit spiky. It's all a little bit difficult. And seeing as how it's a difficult enough time in the world, you can understand how the discourse can deteriorate. But the funny thing is, like, fundamentally... While social media can be a bit of a mess, actions speak a hell of a lot louder than words. And the actions of so many of you, hundreds of you, have spoken because, uh, and we will continue this all month. As you know, last week on this day, at this time, we announced a fundraiser for the Arsenal Foundation. And uh, our prior fundraiser had been £10,000. So we set out to double that. Our goal was to hit 20,000 pounds. Now, candidly, I had no idea, you know, achievable, not achievable, who knows? Well, we are now, one week later, at 106% to that goal with 21,222 pounds at the time of recording this. And, you know, I'm not gonna go on and on about it. The fact is, it's just incredible. It means the world. Um, you know, I said we're gonna thank everybody individually, and we're gonna do that. I'm gonna take a minute now to scroll through a few people. Now, here's the thing, there's over 600 people. It's gonna take a lot of podcasts to get to everybody. But Tim Delap. Jack Schoffler, Julian Wallinger, Jim Clark, Will Akko. I'm going to go on just a little bit longer. You can fast forward if you want, but I feel like people deserve the credit for, for participating in this. John Mew, Lewis McKenzie, uh, Northbank Owlboy. That's his Twitter handle there if you want to follow him. Micah Hurt, Anonymous, one of my favorites, by the way. RG, the infamous RG, obviously. Um... We'll go on, and, and again, we'll do more of this, and and I had a list, and my list just crashed, so now I'm struggling. We're going to get to more people. The point is, like, everybody deserves to be thanked for this, and and we will get to doing that. I just feel, like, really fortunate to be in a position where we can do something like that. Obviously, we gave our share, and and, and thank you to so many of you who did as well, and this will run all month, so we can continue to do this, smash the goal, help the Arsenal Foundation, and and do something positive at a time when uh, a lot of us are doing that sort of uh, stick gif thing of the the guy poking at the Thing on the ground saying do something to arsenal on the pitch but we're doing something off the pitch and that's important okay uh a little bit of word salad there for me let's get tim into the pod you can find him on twitter at stobard tim hello there pause on twitter pause my pants I'll pause Woo-hoo. stupid list <laughs> all you have you to do is list you could, stuff you could have just made stuff up we'd be happy <laughs> john jameson james jefferson james <laughs> jesterfeld <laughs> lars jesterton Whiskey's you drank Jefferson. night, yeah. <laughs> That's the J's. Now we'll go to the G's. George J- <laughs> Um, So, okay, uh, Tim, let's start with some actual football because some actual football happened and Arsenal beat Chelsea 3-2. And given that Arsenal did not beat Chelsea on the men's side, obviously I'm talking about women's football. A lot of splashes being made by Arsenal. Beating Chelsea, signing Tobin Heath, a big moment. Um, you had the chance to to interview, uh, please help me with the pronunciation.
2: Jonas Ilevald.
1: Aydabal, thank you. Jonas Idaval after the game. I had some advice for you, by the way, Tim. Name-checked you directly in the answer about how to stay calm <laughs> amidst tension. You can maybe get to that. But how big a, a start to the season is this for Arsenal? And, and maybe for people who don't follow the women's game, maybe there are some that will come into it now more with Tobin Heath joining because obviously like a big, well-known player can always enlarge the tent. So what are the expectations for the season? How big was this in terms of a way to get off the off to a good start?
2: Yeah, sure. So in terms of getting off to a good start, Arsenal haven't beaten Chelsea for nearly 3 years. Um and they've only drawn one of those games. They they've they've it it's been the single biggest problem for them over the last couple of the year, years and it's one of the reasons that the previous manager left because it's a problem he couldn't solve losing to Chelsea. In the WSL, these games have a really outsized impact on where the title goes. And one of the reasons Arsenal haven't won anything uh, for the last two seasons because they haven't been winning these games, They Arsenal beat everyone else under Joe Montemoro. That was the whole thing was they beat everyone else. They beat them well. But if you want to win the league or you want to win a cup, like if you want to win a cup, you've got to beat at least one of Man City or Chelsea. If you want to win the league, you you can't lose both those games. You can maybe win one, lose one, win one, draw one, draw two. You can't lose both and win the league. Like the... the the league title is generally decided by these games, so albeit it's the first game of the season, long way to go. In that respect, absolutely huge psychologically, absolutely huge as well. Um, in front of a you know a crowd of nine thousand at the Emirates as well, um, and it was it was just really nice because just before the game, I was talking to someone. and I said, "I, I don't like. I really wish we didn't have Chelsea first because what Arsenal have done over the summer." has really enthused people. And then, of course, you get the signing of Tobin Heath on deadline day. And, and you know, a, a bit like the Ozil signing, right? Everyone just goes, oh, my God, I can't believe that we're signing this player. And you get all this excitement and you get all these extra eyeballs and, you know, Arsenal add like another, you know, 5,000 Instagram followers and stuff like that. And then you think, oh, but now we've got to play Chelsea and that could be a real mood killer. <laughs> I really don't want that, but... Happily, what happened was the the absolute opposite, and uh, Arsenal played really, really well. Beat Chelsea well. They, they had a bit of an advantage in that they've played three Champions League qualifiers already this summer, um, and we'll see how that affects them down the line. But in terms of the first game of the season, they're ahead of Chelsea physically, and Chelsea left nearly all of their players out who have, who played at the Olympics, whereas Arsenal had to bring them all back for Champions League qualifiers. So they're a little bit sharper um, than Chelsea at the the moment and it showed. But what was really exciting about it as well was Arsenal are going to move to like a new brand of football. So under Joe, it was very possession-based, very patient, going backwards to go forwards, total football stuff. Jonas is, um, he's a big advocate of the high press, big fan of Bielsa, big fan of Jurgen Klopp. Um, his, uh shall we say, I don't want to say antics, but like he's very excitable on the touchline in that Klopp kind of mould. He's constantly in the fourth official's ear. He's constantly kind of shouting at his players, both encouraging them, clapping them, berating them. Like he's a bit of a whirlwind um on the sideline. And he was actually he was asked about that post match, and he came out with this quote. I can't, I can't quite remember it exactly, but he said something like. Um, if you want your team to be on fire, you've got to show some heat, um, which, which was really, really nice. And it's, it's just like, it's quite a change from, from Joe, who's Australian Italian, like quite laid back and everything. So they, they've moved to this high, this brand of high pressing football and it might take them some time to fully acclimatize, but it was just really exhilarating watching Arsenal take it to Chelsea rather than take it from Chelsea, because that's how Chelsea play. They play a high press and we've struggled with it. But Jonas came up with um, came up with a way of, of playing around that. Also, you know, in his interview afterwards, he said in the last, because Arsenal went 3-1 up, then Chelsea got it back to 3-2 with 25 minutes to go and they were under the cosh. And And he just said afterwards, you know, that's fine. If you want to be a good team, sometimes you've got to defend for 20 minutes. And two players went off with cramp. And he said, That's fine. That's I, I like when my players go off with cramp. That means that they've they've put the shift in and we'll put two other players on and we'll run their legs off as well. And um and you know, he he talked about sometimes you've just got to clear the ball. We like to play out from the back, but you know what? Sometimes the situation doesn't call for it. And and so these things, they're just different. Basically, that's you know it's very easy to fall into the trap of everything the previous manager did was rubbish, and this new guy's brilliant. It's just different. And uh, and he said, "Yep, with twenty minutes to go, we defended the width of the box. We let them put crosses in. We smashed them clear. That's what we had to do to win the game. So that's what we did. And um, yeah, it was was just really refreshing and and just a great atmosphere, um, both tangibly and intangibly around the Emirates on Sunday."
1: Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, we're going to get into uh, Adu's interview, and that'll be the bulk of this episode. And we can maybe sort of contrast some of the things he said and the philosophy there with what is going on with the women in terms of their squad building. I'll stay with you just for one more second, though, Tim. One thing that I thought was interesting, um, you know, reading through his comments after the match, he was asked about switching Beth Mead and uh, Iwabuchi in the second half. And he said, to be fair, it ended up like that after a set piece. We just decided to let them stay, so it's no credit to me. That's what's happening. Uh, that's what is happening in football. It's more a player sport than something like the NFL. You need to let the players say when something is working, and the players need to be knowledgeable to solve those situations. Mm-hmm. Look, <laughs> it's Hard a layup for a leaning into, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> It's a layup for leaning into confirmation bias, and and I I'm going to do it anyway because what the hell? I mean, do you? How do you feel the comparisons and and contrast are between? the women's coach and men's coach right now and like a comment like that do you feel that that would be I mean this is so hard right because I'm I'm leading the horse to water and I don't want to do that (laughs) I'm leading the witness a bit but just maybe you can speak to that ideology and whether you see a little bit more freedom in in the way that they were playing
2: yeah yeah definitely it's weird really because he's such an advocate of Bielsa Klopp and, and that's very like You know that's 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 that you've got to do that stuff together. So it is like tightly coached, but it does sound like he will. Like because I I asked him that question because Beth Mead swapped to the left wing and she scored twice in the second half. So I was kind of saying what a great decision that was to swap her, and and he just said, well, it wasn't my decision. Like it just it naturally went that way and they were saying it was working so i said okay that's fine i i trust my players and he gave a fairly similar answer there was a really nicely worked goal in pre-season uh, not pre-season it was champions league qualifier uh, really really nice back to front move and i think it was art de Roche from the athletic who asked him like you know was that choreographed and he said it it looked like it didn't it but no um he just said they're really really good players and We've got really, really good attackers and sometimes you've just got to let them play. You've got to let them riff a little bit and um, and, that's, and that's exactly what they did. And, and one of the interesting things, um, you know, I asked him about the signing of Tobin Heath. Arsenal already have probably five wide forwards, if we're being generous, definitely four. Two England internationals in her place. So I kind of asked him, you know, D- did you just sign Tobin Heath? Because it's Tobin Heath and if you can get her, you do. And he said in one respect, he said, yes. (laughs) But in the other, he kind of said, because I want this press, he said, like the wide forwards are the ones I want running the most. And he basically said, I'm going to have to rotate them game from game. And he, he basically said, not quite in as many words, it's pretty much impossible to do what I want you to do as a wide forward and play 90 minutes like if you play as a wide forward for me, you're coming off with cramp after 70 minutes kind of thing. So he was <laughs> yeah. like, I, I need that, that switch. So it looks like a contrast to be honest, between there, there was some good choreographed stuff. There was some good stuff they worked on on the training ground to avoid the press, but it, it does look like he will, particularly the forward players let them, let them riff a little.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. Paul, you had a question?
3: Yeah, um, sparking off what you said, so like on the men's side, you tend to have the 18s, 23s, the men's team playing a similar style. But as you talk about, like, this was a great victory and everybody's excited. And maybe he he leans a little towards the Klopp's, Bielsa's, this higher energy, higher intensity. Do you tend to see across the the league similarities of style on both sides of the house, if you like, at clubs. Or, like, because if if the women are tearing it up with a, a Bielsa club uh, style at Arsenal and, like, the men's side is kind of down and grey, um, <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's an uncomfortable contrast at times. It, it's yeah. kind of an interesting angle going forward that we've never had to worry about. Uh, worry about in a good way but I'm just wondering like at the cities, at the Chelsea's do they tend to play a copacetic style across the whole club not I mean there's no reason to you're not filtering the players into it. just wondering culturally
2: so City definitely they definitely do and actually the City manager Gareth Taylor he used to coach the under 21s at Man City mm. and they swap coaches and, and like they swap within the City group as well right so the the old um, coach of their women's team went to New York City like it's a city group thing um so it's it's not just within the club it's within all of their clubs and they have Melbourne City and all of that Chelsea like Chelsea are, are a very like high pressy um type team they play in fact they they actually play quite a lot like I'd say the league winning Leicester side like usually they're, they're quite flexible but usually they'll play like roughly a four four two, and they play tap tap boom football um, they don't mess up. Like they don't pass the ball around the midfield. They they get it forward quickly and early. Um, and and I, I guess I don't think the Chelsea men play like that. Where Chelsea men and women have a similarity is approaches to squad building. Chelsea women just buy stars. They they don't give a fuck if they've got four players in that position. They, they bought Lauren James um, this summer from Manchester United. They've already got like six forwards and they're struggling to keep them all happy. They had a gaping, gaping hole at fullback, which Arsenal really exploited. They didn't buy a fullback. They bought another forward like Chelsea women, same as Chelsea men, it's we're going to buy you all the talent and we're not going to bother whether the squad's balanced or not. You just get that talent on the pitch and doing things. So so Arsenal, I'd say, is the only one where I, th- I think that's quite, that is quite an astute point in terms of, because Joe was very, like Joe was very Wenger, Arteta, you know, possession, total football, that kind of Cruyff um, kind of style. But so for Jonas to move to more of that you you're right. It could create quite an uncomfortable, um, yeah, quite an un- uncomfortable difference um between the two teams because it really looks like Arsenal are going to change style. I wouldn't say drastically, but there's going to be much more emphasis on that high press and it's gonna be it's gonna be Gagan pressing. And in fact, I'd um Jonas Eideval's on Twitter. His handle is at Idaval. Just put in his handle and put the word press. And uh, he used to be quite a frequent tweeter about coaching and there's loads of interesting stuff there about um, how he does drills in training to coach the press. And mm-hmm. he actually uses Paul. He he almost exactly he uses the, he, he puts up a clip with an example of a team scoring from counter pressing and he says, and uh, his caption is, don't press to disrupt the opposition, press to win the ball back and be a playmaker, not a destroyer. And that's that's kind of very much his style
1: cool very interesting well let's um let's move on a little bit. we can when we get into the edu conversation, we can sort of contrast how the women are squad building in the Tobin Heath effect and talk about what adu did. but have to couldn't we couldn't we stay talking about the women? <laughs> I mean <laughs> you're not wrong, but no we're we're going to switch before we get to the edu thing, just real quick, Paul. um I think you know one of the things that a lot of us are are looking forward to is the chance to see the team come back from this international break, looking a little bit more like the team that's planned. And before we get into the ADU conversation, I'm just curious, like, do you what do you think is realistic to expect in terms of the integration of all these new players? I mean, I presume Ben White will be back. Sambi will almost certainly be starting. Tomiyasu, I mean, ADU was sort of on the fence about whether he would start or not, sort of said, you know, he can start right away, but it's up to to Mikel Arteta. Um, Odegaard, certainly, you'd think would start. I mean, it feels kind of crazy to say it, but we we could have, what, I mean, Ramsdale might even theoretically be in line to start, although I doubt it, but if it's Ramsdale, White, Tomiyasu, Sambi, Odegaard, five of the six summer signings could be in the team against Norwich, or, or starting against Norwich. Is that possible, you think?
3: Yeah. Uh, it, it does seem like a season, though, in which your best-laid plans, especially early on, um, will be laughed at, and like there'll just be stuff. People travelling back, COVID, blah blah blah. But yeah, um, it like based on what we know at the moment, we could be pretty close to that. On the other hand, he hasn't had that much chance to integrate these guys, play them together, etc. Um, but yes, it's possible, and and I think Norwich would be a very a very suitable game for us to try and play our football with these new players so it's definitely a candidate
1: and I mean just for you would you go that route I mean would you go the whole hog or do you think it's just a case of like too many new players that probably haven't had the full chance to be integrated together and work it in slowly I mean we're sort of in this very weird position now where there's not a lot of room for error for Mikel Arteta right I mean this is a part of the fixture list where people will look at it and expect a lot of points to start being picked up. So I can see both sides that I need a little cohesion because I can't afford to have a, a a sort of disorganized or or uncoordinated performance against Norwich and, and integrating too many players at once might do that. But by the same token, these are the players presumably he needed to be successful. I mean, there's a couple of them like Sambi and um, Odegaard that I don't think there's even a shadow of a doubt based on what's available. But you know, and and I guess White, given what we've got at center back, Tomiyasu and, and Ramsdale, I'm less sure about. Do, do you think that those are the two that maybe will be left out in this in this case?
3: And you got Gabrielle coming back. I know we're talking about new signings, but it could look quite different. The the, the challenge with like uh, Tomiyasu in particular, for whatever reasons, maybe I'm I'm overdoing the kind of change of league, change of language, change of culture kind of thing. Um, his head could be spinning on, you know, where he gets his Nando's and where he gets his dry cleaning done, and just generally, where like I don't know what he was doing over the international break, but he is a Japanese international, um, so I assume he's been, uh, if I remember right, he's off on international duty and doesn't join the squad till after the interlull. I mean, I just think it's too much. Um, Ramsdale, sure, why not? Um, depending on Arteta's approach to integrating Ramsdale. Uh, Maybe we, uh, like, my first thought against Chelsea was Leno had a bad game because it looked like he was afraid to play out from the back. Having watched it, I think that was strategy. So I don't know that Arteta has the. Leno might have done exactly what Arteta wanted him to do. I'm not sure. That's my read anyway in that particular game. So I don't know that he'll just go and swap him out um unless i'm misreading that so i think it's it's kind of it's by person um i think they will get a chance to acclimate and the other tension with uh on the one hand we went to get these players because we needed them but also you don't want to say to your existing players that the you know five minutes after Tomiyasu comes in the the door he starts even though he doesn't know which way is up tells the rest of your right back signings that you you're desperate to not use them (laughs) so yeah um you got to balance so i think yeah i don't think tommy yasu would be my guess uh ramsdale eh. Uh, if he's got a kind of a you know maybe he has a bit of an excuse with leno coming back and the he he did start. I wonder if he'll start again because Neuer was out injured or something. Um, maybe there'll be a bit of covid stuff, but I still think Leno's the starter right now. So I don't think he'll... I don't know that he's going to go nuclear day one with all these guys. He's going to integrate them, I think. We might have to be a little patient.
1: Yeah, and I, I think like this is the problem with being in a firefighting position, right? You have to... You got to I guess it's true the whole season you have to pick up points, right? That that's the goal. Yeah. But I think if you're coming from a position of more comfort, you can maybe do things that might be a little riskier, but right now he has to do whatever it takes that he thinks will get an immediate performance and immediate results. L- let's shift gears to the Adu thing just a little bit. He looked great. He really did. You know, one button undone, freshly shaven. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he he is a manscape user. You, you know what? I bet he is a manscape user. And that gives me an opportunity to just make the point that you should be too. You know, before we talk about what Edu said, let's talk about how Edu prepared for that. You know, the way he grabbed his lawnmower 4.0 is the way you can too. You want to be a director of football? This is where it starts. Having the right tools. Not the right tools on the pitch, the right tools in the bathroom to get yourself cleaned up, looking good, to sit in front of the Sky Sports cameras and explain why your club is a tire fire. So, Manscaped, well, what's it about? They've got the lawnmower 4.0. It is single-handedly the greatest purpose-built product for shaving your body. It's that simple. And you know, look, I, I wish they didn't call it manscaped all the time because I-, I know we have a lot of listeners who don't need to do manscaping. They need to do womenscaping. And I, I want to be here for you to let you know that works too. You know, I'm not going to tell you about how much my wife loves it because I haven't asked her permission, but she loves it. So the fact of the matter is this is a great product. It has ceramic blades. It doesn't pull. It doesn't tug it. It has a button lock. It has a light extraordinary long life battery, wet, dry shaver, and it has the the contact charger now. The 4.0 does the like inductive charging where you just sit in a nice little cradle. Uh, It has different um, sizers, right? So you can do eyebrows or sideburns, you can get all over. And I think this is one of these points, right? Like when I first started doing this, I thought it was cringy. Now, I still think it's cringy, but at least I know the products. (laughs) And I, I think that the point is like, this is something we all do, right? It's one of those things like most of us do some kind of grooming. And most of us use a tool that you shouldn't. Whether it's an old, you know, just like big razor in the shower that's been sitting there for ages, that just sounds like danger waiting to happen, or a variety of different cheap things that we found on, you know, Amazon for five pounds and it doesn't really do the job. Like this is this is the product you need. They have one for the nose as well, called the Weed Whacker Nose and Ears. Great products for your body as well. It's just a good company aligned with the te- uh, Testicular Cancer Society. They work with them every summer. So like, just a great. Uh, organization to be involved with, a great product and one that you'll love. You can go to manscaped.com, use promo code Arsenal Vision, and save 20% off and get free worldwide shipping. 20% off and free worldwide shipping. I mean, that's a lot of savings. I hate paying shipping, so it's nice to have it free. And you can get it free wherever you are in the world, Lawn Mower 4.0, Weed or all the products. Go to manscaped.com, promo code Arsenal Vision, save 20% and free shipping. Tim, is that enough? Yes. I have to be honest, I wasn't ready to throw it in there, but I felt like we were shifting gears topic-wise, and I was thinking about how uh, nicely put together Edu looked for his interviews, and it just got me thinking about the lawnmower, and so I thought, I'll stick it in there. Um, So is
3: the light very useful? It
1: is, yeah. Yeah, very useful. I mean, like, I don't know what your bathroom lighting situation is, but unless you have, like, a ring light in your shower— Like it can be hard to see. And like, you know, if you're doing your eyebrows and stuff, like you don't want to miss, you don't want to get the wrong side. You don't want to shave off an eyebrow because you didn't realize you don't have the, the, you know, the right size. Uh, How how close
3: are your eyebrows to your beaver?
1: I I mean, well, it depends. You mean my (laughs) pet beaver, Roger? Sometimes he sits on the, on the vanity with me while I'm shaving
3: my eyebrows. This seems like a pretty wild sweep if you take off an eyebrow. Like that's, that's pretty bad coordination.
1: We love the sponsor and we're not going to malign the sponsor by (laughs) degrading them in this way. Um, But yes, Roger is sitting here with me right now. Aren't you, Roger? Good boy. Okay, Tim. Eddie looked good. Mm. He talked the talk. He fronted Mm -hmm. up in front of the cameras. He deserves a little credit for that, but we're here to talk about substance more than style quite clearly. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there are a couple of things that I'd like to tease out of this. One of the things that he was really quick to talk about was building a foundation. Mm -hmm. And I talked with uh, Scott and Paul about this on the Patreon episode, and I want to get your thoughts on this. We did quite clearly make a paradigm shift in our strategy this summer to get younger, to clear out older players, to bring in younger players, everyone we bought under the age of 23, unless you want to count, you know, Shaka re-signing, but that's a slightly different situation. My question to you is whether this is the right way to build a foundation for where this squad is. I was looking at the ages of the players, and it's really interesting if you want to pull up a list like that, anyone just pull up a list and look at our players. And like, there's a bunch of players you might rate, but they're over 30. There's a bunch of players you rate who are under 23. And it's mm. like party and Pepe in the middle. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. literally, that's it. So how do you feel about the idea of 21 and 22-year-old players forming a foundation? Do you think that that, that is the right way to do it? Or did we need to be a little more varied in our approach? What, what's your take on his sort of explanation of the of the approach
2: yeah sure my my take on it so for a start um you know just speaking personally i didn't really feel like i needed this strategy explaining i think it i think it's really obvious to see (laughs) you can't miss it when every signing's 22 no no exactly (laughs) although gary neville apparently missed it so maybe that's why he felt the need to go and explain it but so uh, like yeah i i think i was really obvious that that was what they were doing so I, i didn't Personally, didn't really need that explaining to me, but I I get that I'm very engaged in the whole Arsenal thing. So um, I follow it very closely. My my alter, like, yeah, good, get younger, fine. Like, yeah, don't sign Willian on a three-year deal. I, I don't think you needed to do like a live, you know, you, you don't have to like stick your hand in the toaster to understand that sticking your hand in the toaster is a bad idea. But, you know, we stuck our hand in the toaster a couple of times. For, for me, it's all kind of moot, Elliot. The, the only um, the only thing that matters is whether they're any good. If they're good and young, great. Like that's absolutely great. Obviously, that's better than being good and old or crap and old. Um, but the, the the only thing that really matters is the talent level. Now, um, I, I kind of agree with what Paul said on the Patreon pod in terms of there are tiers of signing here. So, like Ben White martin odegaard they're coming straight into the spine of our team and they're coming in to lift certain departments straight away which is fine ramsdale will probably be able to say that in a couple of months. he will take leno's place i am sure at some point this season just depends when it is so you could kind of lump those three together but then lakonga um and uh and um oh god the right back no, you know Uh, Oh, Mm -hmm. Tomiyasu, Tomiyasu—that's it. Sorry, Um, and Tomiyasu. Those are, I think, are are slightly more punts, Mm -hmm. I guess. Tavares. I'll be honest with you, Tavares. I don't really care about, um, and that sounds really brutal. But like when you sign a left back the same summer that you give your left your first choice left back a five-year, like I feel like about the backup left back that you would feel about a backup goalkeeper um mm-hmm. Elliot in terms of the range of outcomes with Tavares, is really like there are three things that can happen right he's either crap and fine we probably get rid of it we probably send him back to Portugal easily enough in two years he's good but not good enough to take over from Tierney in which case he goes anyway because he's not playing or the third outcome is that he's brilliant and he takes Tierney's place I think that's really unlikely so essentially he's either crap or he's okay, and and that's fine, right? I, I don't I don't think we could have aspired to have done much more in that position. But like th- the only thing that matters, like however young or old they are, is whether they're any good. And um and again on the patron pod, you know, Paul was talking about the usually in this situation, one third are good, one third are okay, and one third are not. Like if only we had like an example in the last fifteen years of Arsenal signing lots of young players. And um, what, like, what happened then? Yeah, they fell into three tiers, didn't they? Like, you had your superstars, like Fabregas, Van Persie. You could, arg- make an argument for Walcott going into that tier based on 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 his output. And then you had that kind of middle tier, and then like you know maybe Diaby, Danielson, Song, players like that. Maybe even Giroud, Senderos, depending on. And and then there was like the layer that just didn't make it, like Carlos Vela. Um, for example, so like that that's the thing with young talent is quite often it ends up going a bit wayward for any number of reasons, injury, attitude, not settling, blah, 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 whatever. So ultimately, like, however, l- like getting younger. Yeah, good. But like if we if we finish 10th, no one's going to say, well, at least we're nice and young. Um, the, the only thing that really matters is if they're any good. And that is what this project will live and die by. And that is what will determine whether Edu and Arteta keep their jobs. That's it. Nothing else.
1: Yeah. And so I want to get to the question of sort of talent and range of outcomes. This is, this is the interesting thing for me, Paul, with with this strategy. Everybody sort of knows reductively. That you want to get younger, you don't want you know these aging players on your books that you can't move. That we needed to get younger. That we had a, a challenge with the squad, and I agree with that. But I think there's a reason you want a distribution of ages because of the range of outcomes theory, right? Which is, but it's not just about age; it's about talent. And, and maybe this is what I'm trying to tease out of this situation. If you buy an elite talent, then they can still bomb. You know, I think of some of the purchases Chelsea made down the years: Shevchenko, uh, Torres. But by and large when you buy elite talent the range of outcomes is relatively small. They might just be okay, they might be extraordinary, but it's a pretty narrow band. So if you buy a Kylian Mbappe, you mostly know what you're going to get. When you dip down into like the 15 million, 10 million, 22-year-old range, you are getting a player with a wide range of outcomes. On the you know and if you express it as sort of like a a violin chart, right? The long tail of it is they become super elite, you know, they become like a, a world beater. The the long tail on the other end is they just become a total dud, a complete bust, and the fat tail in the middle is sort of like, or the, the hump in the middle is sort of like, they're fine. They're a fine player. I wonder if it's not so much that we didn't get the right age profiles and get decent players this summer, but did we add the elite talent? You know, there was a video going around of says Fabregas on Twitter the other day, and I'll always watch those videos if you want to send them to me. You know, and he's assisting Robin Van Persie, and I'm thinking, you know, there was always some degree of elite talent at Arsenal. Alexis and Ozil in their prime, Van Persie and Cesc Fabregas, right? You had these players, obviously the Invincibles were just a, you know, nine or 10 of those those caliber players and and some even beyond that. But I do wonder if the issue I have this summer as I really look at it, isn't that the strategy was wrong necessarily, but that we we have a wide range of outcomes with most of the players we've gotten. And I'm not sure about the elite talent. Like if you look at our squad right now, Paul, most of the players you'd say, oh, that guy's elite, are projecting on young players. Odegaard, Smith-Rowe, Martinelli, Saka, right? The other guys you might say are elite, like Aubameyang, I think we'd agree, has aged out of the really elite category. So is it possible to like the approach we've taken, the strategy we've taken, but be concerned that we have not added the elite talent, that on a pure talent basis— what we've done is sort of committed to a more middling squad, albeit a younger squad that has room to improve.
3: Uh, yeah. Um, I'm thinking about through this one on my feet. So to buy elite talent this year, you couldn't buy six players.
1: No. I, I, so yeah. let me just make make that point. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but just so I, I don't sound like an idiot. I'm not saying we should have bought six elite players. I'm saying when you when you are one of the biggest spending clubs in Europe – could the approach have been to add more elite talent instead of numerically adding a lot of talent, but maybe more talent sure. with wider out- ranges of outcomes in terms of whether they'll be elite?
3: Yeah, um, I guess my point is we actually needed numbers. I mean, they're trying to do they're trying to do several things. There's a whole talent discussion. There's the reset on the wage structure in the club, which this isn't just about young a project building for the future. To me, this is the Kronky saying that's enough of this bullshit Uh, buying nearly elite players, but for super elite wages, because we're out of the Champions League. So we want a Champions League level player. We've got to pay way over the odds. Uh, The ball's all in their court. The contract is all around their terms and conditions. And three years later, because they got frustrated with Arsenal and the way uh, we're going, we have a player who's not quite performing where he needs to be. We would really like to move him on, but we can't. So in a sense, I don't I don't know that the days where Arsenal could buy three elite players and not pay way over the odds in a market, like they may be looking at the market and saying, this isn't where it starts, it stops. Like players are go- all going to run down their contracts. We're seeing that. We can't be buying players... Like, if you buy an elite player now, he's not buying versus future post-COVID readjusted wage structure, taking everything into account. He's still thinking what he got paid last year and the year before. Why wouldn't he? He's getting paid it right now because they're all on those contracts. So I think if just from a securing your future model standpoint this isn't all about football this isn't all about a footballing project this is about blowing up the wage structure hitting the the restart button uh brooming out all the bums no offense meant i love a number of them <laughs> but brooming them out paying them off like they're still like can you imagine having to pay off effectively three four five players on big wages and just saying here's all your w- wages go away go away six months early go away a year early like i suspect the Kronkies had two options for edu and arteta one was you can have this tiny war chest to do that shit we've been doing for years or you can have this really big war chest but you hit the blow up button reset the wages go to 21 to 23 for players who will take way less wages and and adjust to a bigger club like it's a win-win the gamble is will they be good enough how many of them will be good enough will they be good soon enough even if they're good are they a fit will the guy we need like if you need i mean Pick an if you need White, for example, to step up immediately because that's a, a starter you bought, it's no good that he's not the guy that didn't work out but, say, uh, Nuno's brilliant, right? You need uh, uh, If you're going to have a third great and a third who don't quite pan out, they better be in the right spots. You need White to be one of the ones that was great and Nuno if you have to pick two. Um, who who are not great to be one of the ones who isn't great. So there's a lot of gamble here, but I don't think, I think gravity, the force of gravity in this situation is the Kronky saying, yeah, well, we're not doing it. We're not buying you three elite players. We've done that. Uh, the world is changing. We're not going to be on the wrong side of it. And I do think we needed the numbers. So we had to go for volume, the only way this all worked was young, talented, low wages. We'll pay a, a little too much on a couple of the fees, but we got to hit the reset button. Um, let's do a project.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> and I look, I understand, like Tim, a lot of people are going to say the issue is because of where Arsenal are currently, there's only certain players we can attract. Now, I sort of agree, and I sort of disagree. You see elite players wind up at clubs in worse situations than ours. And I, you know, Liverpool, after their eighth-place season, right after Klopp arrived, I think their two big signings that summer were Sadio Mane and Genie Wijnaldum, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. It was the summer after. No, it was that summer. And obviously, they got it right with both. But in Sadio Mane, they got an elite player to come to them just entering his prime. And really make a big difference. Now you could argue we tried to do something similar with like a Nicola Pepe paid way over the odds and didn't get that elite kind of player that that Liverpool did with like Sadio Mane. And then subsequently they parlayed going into the top four to get players like Van Dijk and Mohamed Salah. But I, I, I kind of want to poke at the same question with you, which is on the surface – I like this strategy, and I think you can make an argument for a lot of the players. I mean, Ben White, would I have gone as big on Ben White? We needed a center back. I think that much becomes clear, and while I think the Saliba situation has been handled poorly, even if he was in the team, you could argue we still need a center back. We needed a right back. We needed a midfielder. We needed an attacking midfielder. We bought all of those positions, and I'd say that we did it competently, and yet outside of maybe Martin Odegaard, who... I think you could say has at least potentially that elite kind of talent in him, whether, you know, you agree or disagree, your mileage may vary. Do you think that we, with the amount of spending we made added those kind of tent elite talented players in the squad that you say, this immediately changes your fortunes. Like when Alexis came into our squad, he was a force of nature. It immediately transformed us in some respects. Um, you know, Ozil had a similar impact early in his career and, I just wonder if maybe I look at the squad now and I think we we acquired a lot of the things we needed within a band of talent that's acceptable without getting that player who's going to be sort of jet fuel in our engine, you know?
2: Yeah, I, I think the the bet they've taken is that, you know, maybe Ben White and Erdegaard are the, you know, the Mane and Winaldum of this project. Wijnaldum had not much of a reputation when he went to Liverpool. You know, Newcastle went down, and there weren't that many clubs after him at all. Um, Mane, slightly different, I think. I think people saw potential there, but not this sort of potential. I, I remember thinking, yeah, I'd quite like him at Arsenal but i don't remember thinking oh like this guy will absolutely kill it i just thought yeah he 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 looks a good player feels um, a lot like the diago jota signing to me where you yeah, kind of yeah, knew yeah. there was
1: someone in there but they saw something a little more than that
2: yeah yeah exactly exactly and so what uh, the question is whether we've been right with that evaluation so is you know we've overpaid for ben white i think pretty much everyone accepts that but but have we <laughs> like, we might have overpaid in 2021, but the, the, the gamble is, or the bet rather is in 2023. We look back at it and then think, nope, nope, we didn't. Well, maybe we overpaid at the time, but nope, that's okay. Cause I remember, I remember thinking that Mane, I think like Liverpool got him for 30 million and I remember thinking, mm, yeah, 30 million. That's like, he, he really needs to be good for that kind of money. And, uh, and he was, <laughs> so it was fine. But I, like, I remember thinking, yeah, I'd like Mane at Arsenal and then seeing the price and thinking, well, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go for that. But I, I wasn't like, absolutely. Yeah. You like, you must get this player. And so that's, that's the gamble. That's the kind of what they've bet on this summer is, is that they've identified talent early, at least in like, the, I don't think that so much with like like Laconga, I think is more of a I guess a, a, a long range bet as it were that's that's a kind of okay he can be a backup now and if we're not if we're lucky but if we're good he can be even more than that in a couple of years but if he never you know if, if he's just better than Elneny that's kind of fine so ultimately the, the question is what is have they correctly identified the ceiling and the potential of these players and that's that's what everything hinges on here. Yeah. And I mean, there's only one way we're going to find that out, right?
1: Like they're going to look like geniuses when this becomes the core of a future world beating team, where they're going to look like they locked us into a mid table future by buying mid table talent. And I'm sure people have strong opinions about which way that's going to go, but it's going to go how it's going to go. And we can't do anything about it, but watch. So, I mean, this is the problem with, with debating player identification, you know, everybody has an opinion about talent. I just think when you buy in certain bands of elite talent, you really do narrow the, the outcome, the range of outcomes. I think where I'm at with this is I kind of like the project. I'm kind of curious and interested in the players they bought. I think they bought players with wide ranges of outcomes. Like Tim, if I told you Ben White just fails as a center back, it doesn't work for him. I don't think you'd say that's, crazy you can't picture it but likewise if i said he became sort of the tenacious ball winning ball playing superstar center back that changes our buildup you could see that too it just feels like with a lot of these players that that range of outcome is there maybe odegaard least of all because i see a player who is what he is like he's going to be a tempo quickener a connector a creative player who hopefully adds even a little more end product with assist and goals but is always going to have that technical quality i'll stay with you for one second to this point though in terms of talking about the project, the one thing that came through, I think, both in Ornstein's reporting on the Arscast and beyond and, and then with listening to Edu here is maybe we misread the room in terms of Adu's role. Do you get a sense now that he's fronted up, he's talked about the project, he's talked about his role in it, and we've gotten some of the reporting around this that it's pretty clear now that Adu is not some, um, he's not reek. <laughs> you know—he's not, He's not sitting there um, just being told what to do, but that he is an active participant in large part, leading the project, and that maybe we need to revise our understanding of his relationship with Arteta, where he really is the boss, and this really is his his project to run. I mean, I I don't think I would have said that a few weeks ago, but I feel pretty strongly that's the case now.
2: Yeah, um, and just a warning: you're going to get some background noise. Um, well, that that is life with a baby. Yeah. <laughs> you, you didn't, yeah, you didn't take the hint when I went on mute. Um, but uh, so, sorry, would you would you like me to throw that to, to <laughs> no, Paul? No, how no, no, how dire is the situation? Not no, me. no, no, it's absolutely fine. So I so I never sense to diminish um, a diminishment in status for Edu I, I actually I think Paul's got this one right in that I think this is the Cronky's call cool kind of thing I, I think this is like look we bought you Pepe we bought you Party you wanted those players like prime age players we spent loads of money on we, we can't do that again we need we need to we need to you to show you working a bit more now because I, I do suspect that if you'd have off, offered Arteta another load of 28-29 year olds this summer that's exactly what he would have wanted because that's you know I guess more likely to keep him his job in the short term, but um, you know and that's what a technical director is there to do. And a technical a technical director is there to say, well, your short term is not as important as as our long to medium term. So um, I I don't. I, I guess when you say Edu's driving this, I reckon that's probably on behalf of Josh Kroenke. Like I've got a feeling that, I mean, it would be absolutely amazing if they aren't looking at this squad and thinking, what the hell have you been doing with all our money all these years? Um, It's incredibly frustrating they haven't asked those questions a lot earlier. Um, And quite frankly, I I think the Kroenke's strike me as quite easy to grift. (laughs)
1: Because <laughs> they don't know. They don't yeah, yeah, know yeah. exactly.
2: Like if if you were a grifter, like Arsenal would be a fantastic club to go to. <laughs> quite frankly, um, <laughs> um, but I mean, to but, yeah. be fair, we are a club that gave a sponsorship to a fake car company. So. Well, well, yeah. So so I imagine that like there's been a conversation between Edu and Josh Kroenke, and it's probably gone something along the lines of um, what we were doing didn't work. Do something different
1: yeah yeah and they have done that so paul i will go to you now so that um I, to be fair i was going to say you you have a hysterical baby in the background but usually you have a hysterical baby in the foreground hosting the podcast so it's sort of continuity i guess in that respect paul this this hierarchy now seems clear but i i think they're inextricably linked because I think one way or the other, if this project, quote unquote, fails, I don't see it sparing Edu and the hammer falling on Arteta. So there's definitely a synergy here. One of the things that I thought was interesting in this though, and I'll try to find the quote, it's really the way he talked about the the, the decision of where the money needed to be spent. You know what, I'll paraphrase it rather than searching for the quote. He basically said that, you know, Mikel Arteta and I decided that defense was where the big spending was needed, that in midfield we had, you know, reliable players we could trust in party and granite shaka and we felt comfortable with that so we didn't need to add one you know we added samby for the future but we were happy with what we had in midfield night i think where a lot of people would maybe express their frustration with this project isn't the getting younger isn't even some of the players we brought in it was the prioritizing so do you think like to some extent as as crazy as it sounds the success or failure of this project is going to hinge in some respects on whether they got the priority right Right, leaving midfield alone more or less. You know, I know Sambi is one for the future, is how they see it, and one for the present, given the red card situation. But and they saw central defense as the place that the the most important spending needed to be made. Do you think that's really what it boils down to? Not so much the players they targeted or the strategy of getting younger, but whether they had their priorities right in terms of just positional need. Um.
3: I think there's a like if I look at frustration most of the frustration is around our midfield. Um but like in the decision tree that one comes really early on. Um Arteta likes Chaka. Uh is Chaka staying or going? It turns out he's staying because uh, I don't suspect there was the willingness from the Cronkies to fund a 50 million Or 40 million or 45 million midfielder that we would need to replace him if we were only getting buttons for Chaka, and so I could be wrong on that, but I think there's there is a limit to what the Kronkies were willing to do. Uh, Chaka would have had to go, and when you read the comments of uh, the the general manager from Roma midfield turned out to be low in their priorities, and that's why they didn't push the boat out or even get the boat in the water or, or even dust off the boat and take off the tarpaulin. Uh, they didn't really go for it. If, if we'd made it cheap enough, they might have... So we were basically uh, stuck with Chaka, or basically nearly give him away, and that was not an acceptable approach within Arsenal. And Arteta likes Chaka; He'll live and die by that decision, but he clearly decided early on that White was his priority Um, in terms of, you know, the first area we look to seriously address and spend a lot of money on, spend too much money on, you could say, and that's fine in one position. Go and get the guy you want for the position you need to fill first was White, and you would say Odegaard because they knew that was going to take a little longer. Those were the two priority positions. I don't know that we could have made three priority positions. So, in a sense, Arteta made a calculation that he was happy with Chaka. He couldn't have replaced David Luis with a David Luis analog. Uh, of course white and luis can be quite different but you can see why he thought that was the analog for luis that gives me the thing that i build from the back on i need that guy you can see why he absolutely committed to odegaard i like if you commit to three players you absolutely have to have that you're going to spend shitloads loads of money on you've just gone to the model where you're buying three elite players regardless of cost i don't think it was feasible to replace the midfield um it, given the circumstances, we—I think we all like. I, I like Chak. I I I rate him all that kind of stuff. But we were all ready for a redo, or a refresh, a clean sheet of paper in midfield. Do something different. Um, I don't. What was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I'm well, talking well, around it. They,
1: well, no, I mean it's I, because look, all this stuff is. It's tough because we've talked through it so much all summer. Yeah. So trying to get it at, at it from a different angle now. Like I'm ready for the football, but like it's the question of whether this all hinges on whether they targeted the right positions, right? Like, did, yeah. like I, some people would I have said, striker and central midfield might have been the priority. They went with attacking midfield, center back and keeper, right? And then yeah. you know a couple odds I and ends can't here. And
3: imagine there. how you don't need Odegaard or somebody like him. I love Smith Rowe, but. I actually think Smith Rowe and Odegaard should swap numbers on their shirts because they've got it wrong. They don't do the same things at all. Um, Odegaard is a very different player, a player we need for Arteta or for most other managers. He's he's a true 10. Smith Rowe is kind of an attacking 8-10. If you had two 10s uh, like, say, Chelsea use... Um, or City use. Yeah, Smith Rowe and Odegaard, maybe. Um, I just don't see that we didn't need an Odegaard. I thought, think that's transparent. I don't see how we didn't need to replace not just a centre-back, but David Luiz's presence in the back line. Did we get it right with White? I don't I don't say it. I can't see how I'd call that wrong. Other people might have done it differently, but that seems totally reasonable uh, for Arteta to have prioritised there, given that party chaka were pretty good for the most part last season um i don't think that's my priority they're already yeah. here how do you replace them so and when i look around the team our starting 11 at each position like it's it's still only right back i have a question mark everywhere else i can find a really good name i like if i can get over party Chaka in midfield which I can with a really good backup Sambi who like if I and then to the elite thing in terms of signings I could That's see really it for me yeah yeah in terms of elite signings I can see Odegaard white and Sambi being plausibly um, some close to the elite level that that could pan out for me it's not a complete shot in the dark that those three based on what I've seen might turn out to be three elite <laughs> guys
0: Just go to Indeed.com slash blue wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: It's tricky, right? Because because li- development is not linear. So, like, no. you, you can't ask players to be the same quality at the same age as other players. Like, yeah. when I look at the ages of players like Trent Alexander-Arnold and Kai Havertz, right? And, yeah. I mean, Mbappe and Holland, obviously, but you know, you don't have to go up to that tier. Like Kai Havertz is a pretty damn good player. He's younger than Mason Mount, which I, I did not realize. Like mm. it it does make you sort of wonder, have we sort of overrated some of the young talent we have? But again, that talent can develop at different stages at different ages. We've set our we've set our course now really clearly. And I think this will wind up being one of the most important transfer windows in recent club history because we bought a lot of players. And the range of outcomes for those players, I think, is fairly wide. And if they're able to hit higher-end outcomes, we will be a very difficult club to beat with the amount of high-end young talent in our team. If they hit sort of mid-range outcomes, we may have locked ourselves in, so to speak, to a more mid-table existence by committing to players who don't have that elite ceiling. But that's what we'll find out over the next few seasons. Tim, just real quick to finish off on this sort of squad-building thing. ADU told us this is the foundation. This is the course we set. He explained it clearly. I think he deserves credit for that. But... You know, talking about the project isn't what you paid the big money for. It's getting it right, and time will tell if you did. The women are undergoing a bit of a different project, and obviously adding someone like Tobin Heath, you know, when you talk about that elite talent, there's no getting away from Tobin Heath as elite talent, a, a world-renowned player in the women's game. She's also 33, so you know mm-hmm. where, where I would come down on Arsenal adding a 33-year-old, but it's obviously a very different game. How would you contrast the, the squad building going on the women's side in, in terms of... Their philosophy of of building a winner,
2: yeah, very different. And and actually, Arsenal Women tried to do a bit of a youth, uh, not a youth project. That's overstating it, but they they signed some young players. So they signed a twenty year old Swiss midfielder last summer, um, a couple of twenty one year old uh, centre backs, and they start. They had a twenty three year old kind of number ten who they started playing every week because they kind of said she's the future. Um, two of those players have gone, and so's the manager. <laughs> Which kind of tells you how how that went, really. And in in the women's game, I don't think it's possible to do this kind of project because the contracts are shorter. Um, the contracts are only—I mean, they they're usually about two years. They're kind of pushing up to three. The elite players might get four, but not much more than that. So the turnover is so big that you you can't really do that kind of youth project. And I think Arsenal realised that. And and I think Arsenal have also realised who they're competing with in Chelsea and they've just been more aggressive. Now, we, we should say like the women's squad is in a much better place. It's age profile. It was uh, like Joe uh, Montemora actually left it in terms of age profile really, really good. There's like a couple of players over 30, but most players are like between 23 and 27. So the age profile is really, really good. But yeah, like the way to be successful in the women in women's football tomorrow is to be successful today. Like there is so much turnover that you, you can't really build for the future. But the other the other key thing that's in play is basically transfer fees aren't a thing. And when they like the world record transfer was penilla Harder to Chelsea, that's three hundred fifty thousand pounds. Like transfer fees basically don't exist, and when they do for clubs like Arsenal and Chelsea and Man City, they are actual pennies so um uh, uh, so yeah like Tobin Heath 33 I think she's on a one plus one contract we got her for free we'll lose her for free so it goes that's that's pretty much how it goes with every player you get you're not really looking at making money back so actually probably an even better example because Tobin Heath she's 33 I like I said to you off Mike Elliot I'd compare that to United signing Ronaldo it's like she yeah she's probably about to hit the age curve but that's relative to her own talent she will still do very well we have lots of players in her position as well we don't have to play her every single week I think the more interesting signing this summer for Arsenal women like that is Nikita Paris so Nikita Paris used to play for Man City she went to Lyon for two years she's come to Arsenal big experience scored loads and loads of goals in the WSL. She will definitely score double figures this year. Um, Bearing in mind the the WSL has 22 games. She's 27. So like in the men's game, that would be like party, right? You'd be like, okay, we've got a forward who guarantees you goals. I know party's not a forward, but bear with me. Like we've got like a player who, like the range of outcomes are small in Nikita Paris. She will score goals. She will make goals because that's what she's always done. In the men's game, you'd have to think, oh yeah, but if we sign them on a four-year deal, then they're 31 and then what do we do? It doesn't matter in the women's game because there's no transfer fees. So if she signed for two or three years and that's all Arsenal women get from her, like fine that's just what happens anyway and I think Arsenal have realized that um like that the whole like building for the future idea it, it just doesn't happen like that in the women's game and and Arsenal in the WSL they're one of like the big three so they haven't like lost their status they won the league title in 2019 you know they're, they're still one of the big players in there and what they've done this summer is said, Let's make sure we stay one of the big players and let's not even make sure that we're, we're still on like like what we did on the men's side where it's like, well, if we're in the top four and we're in the big four and now we're in the big six and all of that, it's like, no, 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 let, let's play to win the league and try and win the Champions League. And the other thing about the short contracts is on the women's side, Leah Williamson, Jordan Nobbs, Vivian Miedema, all these players have one year left on their contracts and they're all going to be thinking about what their next move is. They don't want to babysit a youth project. They want to win yeah. now. Like You don't keep Vivian Medema by saying, we've signed a couple of 22-year-olds who will be good in a couple of years. You're, you're, it, you know, whether we keep Medema or not, I'm, I'm not sure, um, ultimately. But you certainly go a longer way to convincing her with Tobin Heath than you do yep. by buying youth. That simple. You've just
1: struck a chord with me that I think resonates in the men's game too, which is like, I don't think—the age curve thing shouldn't be a hard, fast rule. If you can get a player of, let's say, Cristiano Ronaldo's caliber, and economically it works for you, you always do it. Where I think you run into a problem is when you've got players like Aubameyang on huge money who are at the tail end of that curve, and they're not there to be the cherry on top to win a title. They're there with a bunch of 22-year-olds trying to get to sixth. I think it's much harder to get a player on huge money at the end of his career to really have the burning desire to go chase sixth place on the progression back to being top four to someday hopefully go get a title versus getting that same. I mean, if if Aubameyang had gone to Manchester City, I have no doubt he scores 25 goals and helps them win a title. You know what I mean? Because that's a project that at that stage in your career you can be energized from. And if you're going to say, well, he's a professional, it shouldn't matter. I agree. But look at the quotes from Willian that have just come out. Yeah, yeah. Basically, he's like, it wasn't right there. You know, I was there for one type of project. That wasn't the type of project, and I wasn't happy. And not a lot of people, Tim, are going to be sympathetic of a guy who's supposed to make a quarter million pounds a week saying I wasn't happy it wasn't the right project for me. I get it. I have no sympathy for that either. Screw that. Go play your heart out. But that is the reality with footballers, and so I think maybe one of the confrontations we have here is, you know, you add Tobin Heath to a very, very good arsenal to go chase a title. That's one thing. You have Mm -hmm. players like William and Aubameyang there to shepherd 22-year-olds back to sixth place, it's a lot harder to get the bust out of them, isn't it? Yep.
2: Yep. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And like and and for a player like Tobin Heath as well, she'll look at Arsenal and she'll say, Well, yeah, I and, and you know, she played for Manchester United last season, so she's played against Arsenal, she knows what they're about, she knows what the league's about, and she'll look at them and go, Yeah, they can win the league. Um, and I can help them do that and they will challenge for the league. Like that that it's it's not a difficult sell as a as a quote unquote project. It is Arsenal, like Arsenal women, uh, is, is a much, um, don't compare them to Arsenal men. If you're looking for an analogy in the men's game, look at Manchester United, that that's kind of what Arsenal women are in the women's game. They're like the most successful club. They're always challenging for trophies, even when they're not very good by their own standards, they'll get to cup finals and stuff like they compete for trophies every year without fail. So that's, that's kind of, even in Arsenal women's like bad years, they'll probably get to a cup final or something. And that's, um, and you know, and they, they've had that, that brand of success for quite a long time. So a player like Tobin, Heath, she's an Arsenal fan, by the way, massive Arsenal fan. And, and a lot of that, like in the women's game as well, like people who maybe even don't even watch English women's football, like you go abroad or whatever, they'll be like, oh yeah, Arsenal, like. We know Arsenal. Like they, when I was a kid, they were winning the league every year. That that's what it's like. It's much closer to Manchester United, uh, and that's why a club like Manchester United, even though they've not been relative to their own resources in the best shape over the last couple of years, players no, like players don't turn them down. Generally speaking, if they get the chance to go there, they go there because of the name. And Arsenal women have a similar pool. They just needed. I think to pull their finger out and really realize what's happening in the women's game and with the broadcast money coming in from Sky and stuff like that I think they realized like right there's a, there's a boom happening here and we're already near the top like we've done we did the groundwork arguably decades ago that a lot of these other clubs like West Ham Tottenham they're all trying to scrabble in um you know to the middle tier of that league whereas Arsenal are like we did that Ages and ages ago, we're at the top of this league, and we can stay there with by the standards of the entire club, a relatively moderate moderate investment.
1: Yeah, and and if you can do that, you do it. And I think, look, for me, we can really go over the deep end of squad building and age curves and value, and all of those things matter in terms of how you build a winner when you're on you know a budget that's not Manchester City's. But it is a fancy way of distilling the most basic point. It is all about talent. It is all about talent. Forget the coach. Forget the squad building. If you have enough talent, your team will win. Teams that are poorly coached will win. Now, when you have a good coach and great talent, you can dominate. You can do extraordinary things. Klopp deserves a lot of credit for what he's done at Liverpool. But I think Liverpool's talent level is woefully misunderstood in terms of just how many extraordinarily elite players they have at critical positions. Manchester City, great coach, absolutely extraordinary talent. And yes, can can talent give up on a coach and fail? Yes. But overall, it is all about talent. And for Arsenal, it is all about talent too now because we've committed to young players. Are they elite talent? Will they get us where we want to go? We have really committed to this. So we need to get those ceiling outcomes. Let's finish with just a quick look ahead because... Paul, I knew things were bad, and I don't want to over-index Twitter sentiment as an indication of what the fan base is feeling. But I wrote, like, a two-tweet thread. It wasn't even, like, optimistic particularly. It was just like, I'm really excited to watch us play Norwich. I'm really excited to see us with all our players because now we can start to draw some real conclusions because these next few games are winnable and we should have our players back. That was basically all I said. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to be amazing. It was nothing like, and people were furious with me. The other games don't count? What? Oh, so we just get a pass for getting humiliated? Oh, I, I guess Brentford didn't count. Oh, like... I didn't say any of that, but people are furious. They are not willing to see the caveats about why we lost to Brentford, Chelsea, and City. They are not willing to look at the excuses about players being unavailable. They're not willing to look at the excuses of the coward of the opposition. People are upset. They're really upset. And I'm not here to tell them they shouldn't be. But I am here to say that I think that translates into a run of games that are very, very important for Mikel Arteta's future. It's six games in the league with Wimbledon mixed in. And those six games are against three to four relegation strugglers. And four of the games are at home. Norwich, Burnley, Tottenham, Brighton, Palace, Villa. Okay? Four of those games are at home. Two are away. Away to Burnley, away to Brighton. The rest are home. I'm not saying you got to get max points there. But we will be favorites in every one of those games is my presumption, other than maybe Spurs at home. And that one, it'll be close. How... What does Arteta have to achieve over that run, or does it not matter in your view? I mean, is it a case where it really doesn't matter? There's there's no outcomes that would be unacceptable for him. But I, I think even just setting aside whether he gets sacked or not, what do we need to do in that run of games to get this back from being a situation where you can't even write? I'm looking forward to watching Arsenal without people jumping down your throat about it. Uh, like people
3: always want you to put a a number, I I know you're not asking me this, but people always want you to put a number or like, when will you be done with Arteta and stuff? And like, it's, it's messy. It's fuzzy logic. Um, it's like pornography, according to, to the The Supreme Supreme Court. Court. You know, when you see it, you'll know when you see it, or you won't know it until you see it. Um, look, we should beat Norwich. Um, we then play Burnley. We had a hard time against Burnley last year. They seem, given our Brentford experience, they seem well set up to exploit any exposure we might have to aerial weaknesses in our back line, gulp. So that could be a challenging little uh, duel. Uh, Spurs seem to be in a good run of uh, form, so there's your first three games. Brighton are playing good football. The XG Kings, they're at home versus us. Um, then we play Crystal Palace at home, so we should twat them. Aston and I'll Vi- be
1: there, so we better. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: good, good. Uh, then we play Aston Villa at home, um, who may have found their strut and their stride then, but we should still play good football and probably win there. Um I don't know how you say what it is you expect from those games. I'm going to stay calm. I'm going to look to see progress. I'm going to look to see is it starting to make sense. Um, I don't expect my brethren in the Twitter community or in the Arsenal community to be as calm as I am while we're going through this. I expect to have a couple of my own meltdowns when I don't see things happening. I like We're in a tough place And Arteta has to play his way out of this and needs to get this team to start playing his football, good football, getting results or looking damned unlucky when he doesn't, and play us forward um, and build. But the problem is progress isn't linear. We'll have some setbacks. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, again, not entirely sure if I'm addressing the question or even what the question was. I think it's going to be messy. And I think uh, we'll we'll have to say to ourselves, I'm giving it 10 games, and even though after six games I want this to stop, I'm, I'm going to give it the 10 games I wanted to give it and yeah. see where it's at and see is there's progress and be honest with it and see if there's, if if it's a, a random walk but in an upwards direction or a random walk and we're going down.
1: I, I would say this. Well, so Tim, one of the things, and, and we'll finish here. Uh I think I was under the impression before all this Edu stuff broke over the last couple of weeks in terms of what he's been involved in and his role at the club and, and then the interview that it was sort of like the only person that could really sack Arteta was the Cronkies, and they're not too plugged in so he has a long leash. Now I get the sense that Edu really feels very much the boss here that Edu is very connected to this project. He's put his face on TV as the face of this project and I don't think he'll want to be embarrassed about it. I think he would sack Arteta to save his job. Um... So what I guess I would say to him is I do think that this run has a number that if he doesn't hit that number, he's gone. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's six games in the league plus the Wimbledon game, which not super important and almost certainly would be fine. But four at home, I think he's got to take around 12 points from these six games, which is a big hurdle to get over to save his job. I, ju- I just think, and it's not just the points. There have to be goals. There has to be good attacking football. It has to look coherent. The new signings have to impress. I think the bar is actually quite high for him now. I think the Mm -hmm. unfortunate thing about the way the season started is he doesn't just have to be okay now because he had an okay start. He had the worst possible start you could have with all caveats in place, and he now has to have a better-than-expected recovery from that just to balance it back out to neutral. So I'm going to put it around 12. I think he's got to win four of these six games. I think you have to beat Palace at home. I think you have to beat Norwich at home. I think you almost kind of have to win the North London derby, or at least play well in it, in getting something, mm. and then pick another game. Villa at home. I think you got to win those games. But it's um, like a
3: decade I, since we've averaged two points a game. I mean, I, I, Paul, like, I
1: literally doable. said it's a very high bar. I think if he doesn't win four games, he's gone. What do you think, Tim?
2: I, I I'm not sure it's it's that paradox of the heap thing again, isn't it? Where it's like how how many individual grains of sand constitute a heap, and you can't put a number on it, but. Um, the heap amount. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, when you see it, you know, a stack um, of pornography magazines, <laughs> That's a heap, heap of them, a heap of porn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When does it, when, yeah. When does it go from like a stack to a heap? But anyway, um, so it's, it, I, I do, I like, honestly, I, I don't want to dodge the question. I, I do find that, that difficult because, a lot of it will be predicated by the mood of the fan base and things like that. And, you know, will they be really, really gunning for him or will it just be apathy? Um, And, and I think that's what what sunk Emery in the end was the apathy actually more than the, more than the anger. I think they rode the anger out. And then when it got to apathy, they're like, okay, we've let this go on too long. Um, And, you know, the, the, the current Arsenal wasn't um, it the dressing
3: room with Emery though? At the end of the day, wasn't it like it was the fans, it was the media, but it was the dressing rooms, like yeah. Just but then I, I don't,
2: I don't think that necessarily. Like he was sacked in late November. I, I think that happened quite a long time before that. Like <laughs> yeah, like six months earlier. <laughs> I, I think like I think everyone had been checked out, uh, got their plane home, um, uh, and, and I
1: guess
3: my point is, there's no way this team. Uh, is going to quit on him in a few games. You know what I mean? They're like maybe not the whole squad, but but the yeah. older
1: players might.
2: Yeah, yeah. Might. And, but I don't know. Like looking at the Man City and Chelsea games, like you could make an argument. It's already started. Um, quite frankly, like I didn't see anything in those games that suggests they're really pulling for him either. Um, I, I think it's too early to say they they definitely down tools, but. Um, I, I didn't see a lot of togetherness in, in those games. So I think that is a situation that could escalate quickly, but, but look, yeah. Like if he loses all of those games, then he's definitely gone. Um,
1: let me ask you, uh, I can get, let you off the hook a little bit then, Tim, if it's not 12 points, if the results aren't brilliant, but the performances are substantially improved, is that enough for most fans at this point? Or do you think it's gotten bad enough that it, it won't be enough to say, oh, well, I see we're playing better. Does it? Yeah, Is no. it
2: just results that can save him now? It, it's just results. And and I, I think you're right. I, th- I think with the fans anyway, he's in a jam to the point that they, it, it's not just results, it's results and performances that, the, that most people will want. And, you know, we have recent history, right, of Emery going on a massive 22 game unbeaten run. And there was this big split between those of us who are saying, yeah, but we've been a bit crap. <laughs> like loads of people saying shut up we're we, you know we're not losing <laughs> we're well, shut up um but then it's like we awesome. all saw we all saw how that turned out in the end so maybe we're all wiser to you know things like underlying stats and you know just looking with your eyes and looking at the performances so like I think Arteta like, tet- needs both that's not to say in the short short term that they both have to be like amazing like there's going to be a bit of a slow recovery like I wouldn't expect us to go and beat Norwich three or four nil like I think we'll win that game but I think it might be like a one nil or a two one or something because it will be slowly slowly Um, but there, there has to be a direction of travel definitely. Um, And then, and then it's just a case of how long really, and what saves him. And ultimately Elliot in the, in the medium term, I guess, like before Christmas, there is somewhere on this timeline before Christmas where Arsenal lose their patience. Definitely. And it's, it's just a case of when, and that might be, that might be a game or two either way, quite frankly.
1: The reason I picked that run of fixtures too, is I sort of cheated, because three of the next five after that are Leicester, Liverpool, and United away. Mm. Um, and so the reason I said it, I think it has to be almost basically 12 points in, in the run I picked is because if it's not, that next run could get pretty ugly. And then you're looking at a run of 11 games where you're picking up one point a game, less than a point a game, right? That That's where I think it's totally untenable. So... We'll leave it there because on Thursday, we'll have a chance to look ahead to Norwich a little more and, and and maybe tease this out. But I, whether you think he's really on the precipice or not at all, he's got this season, this is his project. Edu really did sort of say that they had the patience with him as well. I think it will be tested. I, I, I think what I'm learning from just sort of some of the negative reaction whenever you give him even any quarter, any excuse, is that people's patience for the excuses, even when they're legitimate, has dried up. So something has to change quickly now, and he's got to run where that change can happen. I feel like having the Derby at home after two winnable games is maybe in his favor because if he can win those two games, Burnley and Norwich, and then beat Spurs at home, that could go a long way to healing that wound I talked about in the last episode, but we'll see. We'll see what happens, and we'll have time to talk about it on Thursday, and we'll have a lot of content between now and then on the Patreon side as well. Bank holiday weekend here in the United States. Um, Labor Day, to respect labor. So, uh, I hope you are not laboring wherever you are and you're uh, enjoying your day uh, as summer turns to fall. Anyway, uh, Tim's on Twitter, Estroberto. Thanks, Tim.
2: My pleasure as always.
1: Paul's on Twitter, Pause my pants. Thanks, Pause. Woohoo. My name's Elliot Smith, I'm me on at Yankee Gunner. Once again, thank you so much to everyone who gave to the, to the foundation fundraiser and I hope you'll continue to do so throughout the month of September and we'll smash that goal and just uh, a lot of good stuff coming. We're going to have a live event in London in October. We'll tell you more about that. Uh, it's going to be the weekend of the Palace game, which is on Monday. So we're, we're working on putting that together and hopefully we'll see a lot of you there. But uh, I think we can leave it there. My name's Elliot Smith. I already told you that, but just in case you weren't sure, we love you. <laughs> And we will talk to you after our 10 Norwich now.